Happy Saturday. It's May 14th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, last Saturday was a Kentucky Derby, and I didn't put the bet on the long shot. It's been a week of money. We also spoke last week about the iconic Marilyn Monroe by Warhol, Shot Sage Blue, going up for auction. This week, it sold. What did it sell for? $195 million, which smashed records. It now becomes the most expensive piece of 20th century art ever sold, right? Yeah. Do we know who bought it? Larry Gagosian, the U.S. art dealer, was the buyer. The auction season seems to have a lot of pent-up demand after a couple years with the COVID sort of clipping its winds. You know, I was trying to make sense of this, like how a work of art could go for this sum of money. And then I realized it's not about me. I'm not supposed to understand this. I'm a journalist, right? This art market, I mean, this is the territory of the oligarchs, Michael. We should just look and observe. It's like crypto. The art market is officially as confounding as crypto. Oh, yeah. You want to apply logic to excessive wealth sloshing around the world in search of uh, goodies to acquire. There is no logic to that. Come on. Yeah, we should have known. Anyway, it's fascinating stuff. I wonder if Kim Kardashian is just like smirking in the corner somewhere, wondering if her dress at the Met Gala had anything to do with the heightened frenzy over Marilyn. Is it Marilyn? Is it the Warhol? Is it both? Who knows? It's everything mashing together in one big stew right now. New York is as hot as can be right now. I mean, we had the Warhol auction last night. We've got blooms blooming on Fifth Avenue. I was out yesterday. We had our cute little Piaggio Ape coffee cart parked on Fifth Avenue and Fifth. And it was so fun. We should have come by. It was great. We're doing this fun little project with Van Cleef and Arpel and giving out free coffee and tea and little broadsheets that we made of our Arts Intel report. But it's so fun. People are out on the streets. It's like everyone is taking selfies. New York is feeling like the tourist attraction it has always been. And it's great to be back. Yeah, it's that moment right before all the summer rentals open in a couple of weeks. So like there's all this talk about pent up demand. There's all this pent up. Everyone wants to be out. Day drinking now seems like a seven day sport. It used to be confined to Saturday and Sunday. But boy, you walk around and it's with the work from home and the warm weather. It's again, like it just is the, the perfect greeting file for like, you know what? Seven days a week, day drinking. It's here. It's on. It's the new sport in New York City for spring. Yeah. When the rosé starts coming on the menu at $18 a glass for bottom shelf stuff, you know it's officially rosé season and summer is around the corner. Exactly. Speaking of wine, there's a great story. And speaking of wine and a lot of money, there's a fun story we have in the issue this week by Joseph Bulmore out of London. And I would say it's no wonder the word booze is at the heart of bamboozle, which is we love a scam here. We love some flim flam man and he's got some this week with a great sort of scam involving high end wine. As Joseph writes, there's no world kind of more rife for exploitation than the wine world. As he says, it's filled with hucksters, shysters, sweet talkers, bamboozlers and schmoozers. And the ever-oiled swill fest of fantastical tasting notes. And it's just a sort of place of long lunches and big claims. He's got a story this week about two guys named Stephen Burton and Andrew Fuller, British businessmen, who are currently facing trial in New York for an alleged $120 million scam where they ran something called Bordeaux Cellars, an investment vehicle promising delectable returns as high as 12% a quarter, which were using rare wines as collateral. 
Shock de shock. Yeah, but I just encourage you all to read the story because it's just one of those, boy, when you think that the rich can't be bamboozled enough, here it is. They signed up at almost 161 clients, poured their money into a tune of $99 million. And of course, that was just a high-end Ponzi scheme, as it's alleged to be. All right. Speaking of wine news you can actually use, Michael, have you heard about Le Dive? Le Dive? Le Dive. Ça, c'est Le Dive. The Dive is a new wine bar that's coming soon to New York City. It's come, It's going to be opening on Canal Street on the border, I think, of like Chinatown and Soho, Dime Square, if you will, that region. It's from our friend, John Nydick. And it's going to be serving, wait for it, natural wine, perfect martinis. They're actually promising that they're going to be perfect and small bistro plates. Boom, boom, boom. So this is going to be our new spot. John has had a complete hit on his hands with his piano bar, The Nines, which is in the NoHo neighborhood of Manhattan. And this is his new project opening up soon. So if you're in New York, check it out. Michael and I will probably be there on opening night, which I think is going to be next week at some point. I hope I can get in. You know, I'll just have to tag along with you because you've got the cool kid card and I'm just your plus one. So happily so. Honey, you're the perfect plus one. Let me tell you. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I'll at least go there because I know that even if I go there, I'll be in bed still at my prescribed healthy hour, unlike the people that Elena Claverino profiles this week, because she's got a story this week about the hot new movement in clubs in New York. It's not to have a permanent club for the Gen Zers and that generation. It's about pop-up clubs because they feel like once something gets discovered, it's over. So they want to keep moving around. There are a number of club promoters called Aftermoth is one, Garanga, which was the brainchild of Brian Ferry's son, Isaac, and a number of they charge 50 to $60 for a ticket. You find out about on through social media, you show up, you party all night or in some cases for three days straight. And that's New York's newest Newest, 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 hottest. I feel like, what's his name on Saturday Night Live right now? Who is that character that... Oh, honey, I haven't watched Saturday Night Live since the 90s. I'm sorry to say. Wow. Just like, you make me sound like the queen today. Like, I have mobility issues and I can't do my job right now. (laughs) I'm sorry. Look, I watch the clips after the fact, but you know as well as I do that I go to bed at 9.30 every night. Sorry. That includes Saturdays. If it's a good Saturday, maybe nine. No, I mean, look, we live a hardened life here in New York, but we used to stay up late and go to these things. And I have to say, I read Ellen's story and I thought, "Mm, I'm not envious of that. Like, I'm happy to be old. Nice your next (laughs) t-shirt. Happiest to be old. Being old, it's better than you think. I read Ellen's piece and it was just like, all I kept thinking was Stefan from Saturday Night Live. If you're looking for New York's hottest nightclub, it is. But anyway. Beatrice in, may it rest in peace. Like, it was good while it lasted. What was that other one that we used to go to? I remember going to Lotus, Don Hills, Tiz was an 80s night. Clubs, they used to be a thing. Is Don Hills still open? I think Don Hills is closed now. Mm-hmm. Did you go to Tiz was or 80s night? <laughs> Let me tell you. That sounds like something on an over 40 dating profile. That's what you asked. Hey, now that I'm newly single, just asking. Totally. Ellen is probably, we talk about 80s night and like the Gen Zers who are listening to this are probably like, oh my God, 80s night. Like that would be like for us if people were like, don't you remember the music of the 40s? You know, like when we were. Don't you remember we used to have Charleston night? It was amazing. 
<laughs> I love it. Michael and Ashley, we used to be fun. Well, you've got a great story out of London this week, speaking of fashionable, all things fashionable. We do. Vassie has a great story about Daisy Nashville. So everybody in London knows Daisy. I met her the last time that I was there. Our friends over at Anderson and Shepherd said, hey, you should really go and meet Daisy Nashville. She is doing some really cool things in her shop right across the street. And Daisy is a very talented tailor. And she has opened a tailoring shop called The Deck. And The Deck really only makes suits for women. She's the first woman to storm the largely all-male ranks of Savile Row. And she makes these just gorgeous suits. Like, even if you thought, I'm never going to wear a suit, you look at Daisy's and you're going to try one on. I mean, it really inspired a whole new look for me. And Bassie gets to the heart of the matter in this story of an entrepreneur who dared to do things her way. I love it. I bought a few of her shirts. She did a collaboration with Turnbull and Asser. And I bought her tuxedo shirt and this great, like, ox French cuff button-up. And I wear them all the time. They're just so well-made. They look so nice. Uh, She really has an eye for this stuff. And her custom work is absolutely gorgeous. If you are a dork about fabrics, it's the place for you to go. So the deck in London and the tailor there is Daisy Natchbull. Perfect. Okay, Michael, all this talk about clothing and tailoring is weirdly making me hungry. And we're going to bring Jim Kelly on to talk about food. Now, Jim is our books guru here at Airmail and a very funny writer as well. And he reviews a new book about Zabars. And if you don't know about Zabars, Jim is going to tell you exactly all about it and why you should care. So welcome, Jim. Jim Kelly is here to tell us all about the place in New York that you must know everything about. What is Zabar's? Zabar's is a unusual kind of store. It's on Broadway and 80th Street. It takes up about half the block, and it has been on that block, but not in that exact same location since 1934. And it's become famous, I suppose, over the last... Well, it's always been famous in New York, but it's become famous over the last 10 or 20 years because it you know, it pops up in a couple of Woody Allen films. Nora Ephron was a big fan, so it's in You've Got Mail. It's cited in a Philip Roth novel. Zabar's is the kind of place where you can, in one trip, buy olives, cheese, coffee, baked goods, bagels, and all kinds of housewares. But it's most famous for its smoked fish particularly it's smoked salmon, and that really is the, the beating heart of the store. It's always been in the family of Zabar's. It has a very distinctive shopping bag. It's big orange Zabar's on a white bag, and it just attracts a whole bunch of people who live in SROs and famous stars and famous politicians. It's kind of the go-to place for what a Jewish person might call appetizings. And who are the people behind Zabar's, Jim? Who's running it now? Well, it's very interesting. It's um, the people who founded Zabar's was Louis and Lily Zabar. They both, though they didn't meet there, they both came from what is now part of the Ukraine. And they met here, they married here, and they opened a kind of a grocery store specializing in fruits and vegetables in Queens. But it turns out that Louis Zabar was allergic to the skins of the fruit and the vegetables that he had appeal. And the only way he found relief was to go next door and thrust his hands in a barrel of herring. The water in the herring had a very soothing effect on this. So he realized, okay, he really has to get out of selling products that he's allergic to. And at the same time, he got an offer on a lease in Manhattan. So in 1934, they opened their store and they did a very, very smart thing. They not only bought their own store, bought the property, which means they never had a deal with an increase of a lease, 
that has killed so many small businesses in New York. But also they bought real estate all around them. And they did other smart things like they would start price wars and their big foe back in the 70s and 80s. It's hard to believe now, I suppose, but it was Macy's. And Macy's in New York had decided to make a big push into the same kind of things that was sold at Zabar's, and they called it Macy's Cellar. And there were three partners of Zabar's in those days, two of the original sons, three sons, and a very smart man they brought on as a third partner named Mary Klein. And it was really Mary Klein's idea to start price wars with things like when the food processor first came out, the Cuisinart, he would undercut his competitors and he would undercut his competitors on caviar and undercut them on even chocolate bars. And this got them a lot of publicity and cemented their reputation as a place not just for quality foods and appliances in some cases, but also for cheap prices. Jim, one of the things that is most recognizable about Zabar's is that branding, right? That big orange Z. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, that's a relatively recent development. It came from the 70s. And they decided that they wanted their own shopping bags. And to describe the shopping bags, say there's a big Zabar's and it says Z. Then in type, there's just a whole bunch of products they carry. And then at the bottom of the bag, there's a little photo of some barrels and other things that you might find in a delicatessen. And someone put this together very, very cheaply and it was approved. And then someone had the bright idea to make Zabar's orange. And now that is not only, I think a brand maybe not as famous as the Nike swoosh, but certainly for people who like bagels, it is. And their door signs are all in orange. They came up with a good idea. And just as importantly, they really stuck with it. Jim, you talk about someone made that decision. And I presume this is Zabar's A Family Story, the book with recipes, someone in the family. But what I found fascinating is Louis kids are basically still running the store at the ripe old ages of, what, 93 and 89? Absolutely, absolutely. Saul Zabar is the oldest, and he's 93, and you can still see him in the store. And what is he doing in the store? He is uh, collecting shopping carts that are not being used. He is picking up things off the floor. He's just wandering around in the most unobtrusive way possible. If you didn't know who he was, you would think that he was some guy who decided to give a job to because he lived down the block in an assisted living house. His brother Stanley is seen less in the store, and it's Stanley who was the real estate genius and whose first love really was real estate. The third brother, Eli, he when he graduated from college, he expected to be named a partner, but they didn't name him a partner because he was 10, 12, 15 years younger. So Eli, in what people think was a huff, but not really, or the huff didn't last. He moved across town and he is almost as famous for his foods, which he sells under EAT, Eat. And he owns lots of stores over there and he owns a very big place called the Vinegar Factory. But he has taken the opposite tack from his brothers. And that is the brothers will sell everything they can and it will be cheap. Eli's stuff is much more highly curated. He specializes in bread, and his bread is excellent, uh, especially the baguette. It's served at many restaurants across the city. Um, But he also charges absolute top dollar. Um, And there's just some things he will not carry. I mean, Zabar's moves a lot of cheese, and one of his most favorite cheeses is Jarlsberg. And if you go into an Eli Zabar store and ask for Jarlsberg, you might actually be thrown out. 
He hates Jarlsberg cheese, as uh, as they say in the book. Okay, Jim, because you're not only a Zabar's expert, but you are also our book editor here at Airmail, what is on your nightstand? Sorry, cheesy question, but we have to ask. No, well, I'm embarrassed to say. What's on my nightstand is almost always something that I know I will never read because I tend to read during the day and not on my bed. At the very moment, there is a collection of Dorothy Parker's play reviews. I thought you were going to say you had a big tub of noodle kugel next to your bed, Jim. <laughs> no, what I love about this book is interspersed in the chapters, through the chapters are the, the recipes from Lori Zabar's grandmother. Um, and you read these recipes and think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you have the time to go out and get all the ingredients and make it. But since almost all these dishes are sold already made for you at Zabar's, it just seems to be much more efficient to buy them. It's only after I read the book, by the way. It's very chatty, a lot of detail that I happen to love, like the different ways that you brine herring and things like that. But you learn at the end that Lori, who is a daughter of Stanley, and was actually worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for many years, died in February. She was only 67. She had dealt with cancer for the last few years and obviously was finishing the book while she was ill. And it adds a a poignancy to the reading because the book really is about a tight-knit family that love each other. And I can't think of a better memorial for Laurie Zabar than for someone to, to read this book and come away with the appreciation I did for the family behind Smoked Salmon. Well, Jim, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your take on this book with us. It sounds like a great read. Well, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. It's a perfect book for a Saturday morning, that's for sure. Exactly. If Murray Klein, one of the parts was still around, he would sell this book at cost and throw in, you know, a bagel, some salmon, and a pound of coffee. But it is the perfect Saturday morning book to read while you're munching on Rugelhoff. Yeah, and they should make it scratch and sniff, too. (laughs) Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Okay, thanks to both of you. This is fun. Okay, I need a bagel now. Can I get that on Seamless? Speaking of restaurants, you must be a fan of the Grand Banks and Island Oyster and Pilot, those restaurants. You know those restaurants? Of course. I mean, look, cocktails floating at sea, what's not to like? Okay, did you know that the gang behind that has a new restaurant, but it's on land and it's a sort of like secret little clubhouse? On land is less interesting, but you had me at Secret Little Clubhouse. Called Holy Water, which I checked out the other night. Oh, really? What did you like about it? Well, they're sort of culmination of years of wild nights on land and sea. You may know the guys. They're second-generation restaurateurs, Alex and Miles Pincus from New Orleans, and this is their first land restaurant. He's got his roots in New Orleans, so it's deep down in that. He's got his mother's praline recipe. They got oysters falling out of the sky, and it's down in Tribeca, down a few stairs, and it feels like you're in the sort of cabin of the perfect ship down in New Orleans. But I think you would love it. Sign me up. All right, Michael. Well, we have a real treat today. As you know, I have said several times that I think Hacks is by far the best show on television right now. Fact. We're fortunate that we have Paul W. Downs and Chia Agnello, who are the co-creators, co-showrunners, writer. I mean, they do it all on Hacks. And we're so thrilled to have them here to talk about the second season of Hacks on HBO Max. Welcome, Paul and Lucia. Thanks for having us. Hi. Good morning. Freaking good morning. (laughs) Okay. So you guys are a professional and personal partnership. 
tell us a little bit about the genesis for the idea behind this show and how you came to work together on it. Well, we were on a road trip with our collaborator, Jen Statsky, and I should know the year off the top of my head. I think it was 2015. 2015, now I know. <laughs> and we were driving from Boston to Portland, Maine, to shoot a section of Paul's special for Netflix called The Characters. And we were just talking about what it was like for so many female comedians of a certain age who like, you only really find out their true story when you read like their obituary. And we were kind of like, man, it's crazy that these women like endured so much sexism literally at every turn and never really got the accolades that their male counterparts had. They didn't have the specials. They didn't have the Lifetime Achievement Awards. And and it was just kind of a shame. And especially the way that they blaze a trail for us to be able to tell female stories in comedy. And we didn't really even have a full appreciation for them. And so that kind of spawned the idea of, of a younger writer or comedy writer kind of getting to appreciate an older comedy writer and that two-hander being like something interesting to explore because it would be a little bit of a generational divide, but also between two women who are also so similar. And that was it, baby. What I love about the show so much is I think it's a deeply feminist show. You do an incredible job of having these two different perspectives, right? From the Jean Smart character to the Hannah Einbinder character, Jean obviously playing a seasoned veteran of the comedy worlds for the past 30 years. She's been in Las Vegas doing a residency there. And Ava is her young co-writer who... It's had a bit of a scandal in Los Angeles and comes to sort of for a second act of sorts in Las Vegas writing for Jean. On whom did you base those characters? I mean, they're an amalgamation of a lot of famous, both stand up comedians like Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers and Elaine Boozler and Paula Poundstone and just a ton of women we admire, but also showbiz veterans like Debbie Reynolds. And there's a little bit of Lucille Ball because in our history of the character. Deborah was on a sitcom with her husband and had kind of a public divorce. There's some Elaine May in there. I mean, there's just a lot of sort of, again, showbiz veterans that we brought together to make this character. And so we did a lot of autobiography readings and just read a lot of articles and also made a lot of stuff up. And for Ava, I don't think she's really based on anybody in particular. I think a little bit she's based on like younger versions of ourselves who are maybe more kind of getting drunk on the tempting coolness of Hollywood and being a cool comedy kid and all that kind of stuff. And I think that there's also kind of a, there can be the kind of person who's more interested in being the hot kid on the block versus actually like being really invested in the stories. Though I think Ava is actually very invested in doing something important and saying something important. So I don't know, she's just kind of nascent version maybe of ourselves, I suppose. And why Gene Smart? Well, one thing we really wanted to do in making the show is have this tone that was both hard funny, have characters that could make actual hard jokes, which works because they're actual comedians. Because they're comedy writers, they can do that. But also, we wanted a really grounded portrayal of these women and their lives. So we wanted to find somebody who could both be a believable stand-up and sell a joke and be liquid funny, but also deliver on those more poignant, grounded moments. And also had to be over 65. So that list of women isn't too terribly long, but for us, Jean was always at the top of it because she's both so, so funny. You know, she 
to us is always one of the funniest things of whether it's her turn on Frasier or obviously in Designing Women or even in the Brady Bunch movie. I mean, she's always stealing the show because she's just got such great comedy timing, such great comedy chops. No one screams like Jean Smart, I'll I mean, tell you what. Is, yeah, and she's tough and ballsy. And then we saw her in Fargo and Watchmen and she has this quality. She's just such a great dramatic actress. You know, she's Gravitas. classically trained and she comes from theater and she also can be really intimidating. And we wanted this woman to sort of be this ballsy, intimidating, dark mentor for Ava. And so she checked all the boxes for us. One of the things I think is when we talk about a great show, I think one of the hallmarks is always that every character, no matter how small, is shaped and you know them immediately and you look forward to seeing them, even if it's for 12 seconds on a shot. And Paul, you're in the show as well. You play Jimmy Lusak. Jimmy Lusak Jr. I think it's French. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. Belgian French. We're not sure. He's got to do 23 and me. <laughs> as the agent, which is a fantastic character. But then you've also got the assistant, Megan Stalter, right? Who plays Kayla. And yes. I think just the dynamic between those two is always something I look forward to. But did you create the part for yourself or did you just guys just look at you like, only I could play this? Or how did it come to be for you then? We auditioned hundreds and hundreds of really talented <laughs> male actors and I won the role. It was fair and square. Of course it was. Completely fair. It's all about talent. We did write that for me. Yes. We wrote that with me in mind. And it's, um, we've always wanted to have, so we love classic comedy duos and shows. And so we wanted this manager and his assistant to kind of be that comic relief. But this season, you see a lot more depth, which is, it sounds like a joke, but it's true. You <laughs> do see a lot more depth from both Jimmy and Kayla. So season two, it has officially bowed on HBO Max. What should we be looking for? What should we expect? Give us some of your highlights or any foreshadowing you can do. Yeah. Well, Deborah and Ava are hitting the road for the majority of the season, um, working on Deborah's new act, her new hour. It's more confessional, it's more raw, it's more real, it's more her real story. But that is easier said than done. It really requires Deborah to leave her kind of castle in Vegas and start to rough it. And not only literally having to be on a tour bus, but also it's really hard to start from the beginning on something that is different than what you've been doing for the last 30 some odd years. So it really forces her to confront a lot of ghosts in her past. And it's also so fun and silly and stupid and genius. We get to- <laughs> I love it. I think that's how HBO is promoting it. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, we memorized that soundbite they sent to us. Um, you know, we get to put them, like they're really fish out of water. And if they were these two women against the world, now they're two women against the world in between cities in the middle of nowhere, which makes it very easy for Deborah to potentially hide Ava's body. So there's some suspense there, but we hope that we're giving fans of the show more of what they came to love in terms of their dynamic, but also we really tried to go deeper and to deepen their relationship. We're definitely here for it. Well, thank you both so much, Paul and Lucia. It was such a treat to talk to you. We love, love, love the show and we will be eagerly awaiting each episode. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for loving. Thanks guys. Have a great day, guys. Thanks again. Okay, Michael, The Weekend Beckons, what do you have to recommend to us? I'm going to recommend a book by one of our contributing writers, Rich Cohen. It's called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen. And it's a lovely, funny, poignant profile of a father who wrote a bestseller in 1980 called You Can Negotiate Anything, How to Get What You Want. And it's a proud son writing about his father, but it's more than that. Herb Cohen, the protagonist, his father, was raised in Brooklyn on one of those kind of lower middle class Jewish neighborhoods. One of his best friends in his local gang was a man named Larry Zegner, who grew up to be Larry King. And it just tells how 
Herb's wit and wisdom and how he became a master negotiator, even advised Ronald Reagan with Gorbachev and consulted on the Iranian hostage situation. But he's just a larger-than-life character. It's beautifully told, got loaded with aphorisms. As Rich says, he's sort of the Jewish Buddha when he says things like, money talks, but it doesn't tell the whole truth. I loved it. It would be even a good thing if you're looking towards Father's Day as a good gift. I loved it. And you, my dear? My big recommend of the weeks is obviously Hacked. But in the event that, not saying that this has ever happened to me, it never would, but in the event that you are getting an early start on your Father's Day shopping, I was just looking at our airmail storefront at the shop. There are a lot of good ideas in there. I have already actually placed my order. We have a really good assortment. David Foxley, one of our colleagues, edits the shop and he's done a really incredible job. Like not only is our Anderson Shepherd jacket on there that is fabulous, but they also have a really good mix of like hydro flasks tumblers and like really good weekend bags and cool boat shoes from polo and great looking watches and Montclair swim trunks. Like anyway, if you're looking for a Father's Day gift and you don't want to be like me and be excessively tardy, check out the airmail shop. We do actually have a lot of great stuff on there and it's certainly worthy of your time and spending dollars. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Michael, it's your time. Please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julia Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks for joining us. 